Hey everybody, welcome to this week in pre-IPO stocks podcast with me. I got Nick Fusco, CEO of 8View, a pre-IPO secondary market pricing company. Glenn Sorensen, Chief Investment Officer at WellShield, an outsourced CIO and investment research company. And of course, a very special guest in Tim Yuri, Managing Partner at Orbis Wealth Management and RAA in New York City. All right, so we got three topics to hit on today. One, Better.com uh, has passed its SEC troubles, looking to go through a SPAC. Kind of want to talk about SPACs with you guys for a second. I was a little shocked when I saw some stats. eToro did a secondary sale, which I want to tie that back to some other activity that's going on in the pre-IPO space. And then also pre-IPO uh, stock valuations seem to be resetting, right? So I have some questions for you guys there. But first, let's hit the SPACs. So listen, I thought SPACs were like dead, like not happening anymore. I was wrong. Okay, check this out. 16 SPACs have IPO'd in the first half of 2023. I don't know how much capital they raised, but new SPACs, right? 16 in the first half of this year. And get this, 64 have de-SPAC. So they found a company that they merged and then like went public. 64 in the first half of this year. Okay, I thought SPACs were dead. I was wrong. So Tim, like, like, what do you think about SPACs? Like now there's like, when I was growing up, there was IPO. Yeah. Now there's IPO, there's direct listings, there's SPACs, right? SPACs were like the hot dot during like COVID time, right? Now, like, I don't know. The people I talk to don't like SPACs. What do you think about SPACs, Tim? Yeah, no, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. It's like an evolution, right? Where IPOs was the hot thing, then SPACs, and then it ebbs and flows. I think it's honestly just a progression of somehow this works. What, what you just brought up, Aaron, relates to me to the RA industry where there was private equity money in, and then they said there was going to be a slowdown of private equity money in transactions. Now it's actually true still there and maybe multiples of changing. So I, I don't think it's a going away item. I think it's more how things have been flow in that market. But I'll say from an individual client perspective, uh, in terms of SPACs, I still don't think that hits the radar as much as uh, institutional investors and asset managers uh, see it. Uh, because I think they're still going to be more comfortable in the IPO. IPO feels normal and safer, if you will, or more well-known. Yeah. SPACs is still going to seem esoteric and out there, unfortunately, right. still. Okay, so, so Clint, to that point then, because like, there's a lot of, I would say, odd price activity or price action after a SPAC comes out. I'm, I'm not talking about like, I haven't done research on this. This is just like my gut feeling, right? I mean, can you can you even invest in these anymore? Like you're looking at your clients, your advisors, you're like, hey, let's like let's get in, let's get a little uh, allocation of some SPACs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is that's not an allocation. No, no, it's not an allocation. What it is, though, uh, we have invested with managers in the past who have specific arbitrage strategies around SPACs. So I think you have to separate trading and investment. And a lot of the time, uh, I mean, I hear market prognosticators get this wrong a lot too, and they say something's a good investment and it's really a good trade. I think SPACs, there's a ton of arbitrage opportunity and uh, uh, there's obviously a ton of asymmetry and that's not in the client's benefit. But I think if you uh, have a strategy and an edge there, I think you can you can make money trading just like anything. But as far as okay. the allocation to that as an investment long term, absolutely not. They're fee ridden. I haven't liked the structure from day one. Uh, and I typically... Uh, Aaron, I'd like to call you about names I want to get in before they IPO or SPAC, right? That's sure. the name of the game. I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be left holding the bag per se. And I think if you're buying these SPACs in the open market, you're you're most likely holding it, the proverbial bag. It is interesting. Like I, the thing, 
the thing I wonder about the structure is, is it, is it just a little too loose and fast? Like, you know, like you could think mm. about mutual funds like way back in the day. I'm talking like, you know, 30, 40 years ago, right? 50 years ago. It was a little, like a little loose and fast. Things have tightened up. Same thing with maybe hedge funds, right? Things have tightened up. You know, I wonder, I wonder if, if the same will happen, happen with SPACs, right? But, uh, I mean, what do you think? Do you think there's opportunity for like not to be so expensive and, you know, I, I think it's just a way to bypass uh, a certain pathway called IPO. Uh, that's what I really believe. I think it's a way to get to the public market quickly. Yeah. Uh, and I do think it comes with, you know, typically higher fees, weird structures. And yeah, uh, it just doesn't seem like a great long-term investment for me. I think they capitalize too a lot. This is a personal opinion, obviously. I think SPACs really capitalized on a lot of this kind of uh, retail optimism in the markets, right? The whole right. Reddit craze. I mean, yeah. the zero days to expiration options. I mean, we've, we've seen a massive amount of speculative activity. And look, when you have speculation, there's going to be, we're, we're at a market, right? People are going to yeah. rise up and meet that demand no matter what we think of it. Uh, but yeah, I just think it's, I think it's more indicative of the rise of speculation, record levels of speculation than it is uh, some sort of structure that's uh, going to really dominate in terms of how companies go public. It's it's been around for a really long time. Yeah, it, uh, been, it yeah. just it just is popular now because of speculation. I think as IPOs, uh, as big companies start to go public again when the liquidity trends change, I think that's going to be that's going to dominate over maybe these spacs, especially from deal size. Yeah, do you think okay, the, so, go ahead, it, go ahead, Nick, go ahead. I'm kind of curious on this: the, the lower requirement to even around the spac really lend well to bringing it to the retail market because perhaps the primary market on the, on the private side isn't going to absorb them. That's They're true. not going to want to take those prices. There, it's, it's almost like a bad indication that something's coming up. Is <laughs> my thought. Well, and, and the performance true. kind of showed that, right? Yeah. Well, that's like, where it's interesting so too, Nick, because these, these like 64D specs, like, I can't think of one name that I've read about in the paper Right. And I think we're all like well read on the financial markets. I can't remember one notable name that's like, oh, wow, they did a SPAC. Like, I mean, first of all, the, great. the IPO market's like yeah. frozen anyway. So, like, if the IPO happens, everyone's like, oh my gosh. You know, like, you know, IPO, it's crazy. Like, that barely happens anymore. But, like, I haven't heard of anything notable in SPAC. That's why this better.com thing kind of jumped out at me, right? But, but Nick, I, like, this is my, like, Clint mentioned Reddit. There's a couple other names that are like kind of big pre IPO stocks that are coming. Like as you're talking to people in the space, are they do you you know Stripe is potentially going to go public? Are they are people like in the secondary market? Are they talking maybe IPO? Are they doing SPAC? Are they going to do a direct listing? Like you hear any rumblings on kind of the preferred method of of how these guys might go? Sure. Yeah, I think the full expectation is that folks want to see the IPOs start to reemerge again. Uh, that's going to be to the benefit of the. Uh, the shareholders that are buying in in the most recent rounds, as well as the common shareholders, right? That's, right. that's the big win for the employees to see the, the full success of the company. So right. I, I think we're starting to see that expectation there. And what we're, what we're kind of banking on is that a lot of these prices that we're seeing in the secondary market are all going to take a nice pop upon that IPO approaching. So what we're, uh, what we're really curious to see is where are these IPO ranges? You mentioned Reddit, because their range, I think as of a month ago, was something like 10 to 15 billion is what they wanted to hit. We're right. well below that with what we see in the secondary. But I think that's that should be indicative of, of the expectation. You know, Got that it. They will start to converge the closer you get, the more confidence you have 
in the IPOs occurring. Okay, but th- it sounds like it's IPO. It's not SPACs or right. yeah, the, direct the listing, that work, right? The, the companies that are doing many uh, tens or hundreds of millions in the secondary markets, they're not. We we don't see any feedback to say that these are going to be uh, back or despack. Yeah, that's, yeah, okay, uh, I got you. That's not that's not the the pulse that we're we're, we're seeing there. Okay, got it. It's cool. Look, like SoFi, I worked at SoFi Head Shares, right? And they went public through a SPAC. So I know more about this because I lived through it than I'd like to admit, <laughs> right? So, so I, but I got to tell you, man, I don't, I think you guys are right. I think it's all IPO from here on out. If you're like a proper, reputable company, you can get a big investment bank to, to take you on, right? I think like everybody's kind of in agreement now that IPO is like, that's it. You know, yeah, I mean, um, they, these companies have very, I mean, Clint, you always do a really good job of hitting on the, the financials and the, and the importance of these companies that are coming out. Uh, the fact that we're going to just disclose that coming into the IPO, uh, the investment bank, Aaron, as you're mentioning, having a proper roadshow, bringing these, these names to market, supporting the IPO. Those are big factors. I mean, that's, that's what you kind of want in a, uh, in, a, in a normal market scenario, which I think we're coming to. Right, right, right. Okay, let's shift gears a little. It's slight, a slight shift gear, uh, shifting gears here. So eToro, right? So eToro did this big secondary round. So I like find this super interesting because eToro did this secondary. Their purpose was to like get in liquidity for employees, right? Stripe had like this hurry up offense, like primary. It's like a primary round, but like everybody got calls. I was getting calls from like Goldman private wealth people. It was wild, right? To like invest in the Stripe round. That was for employees. They were like paying tax bills related to employees. Uh, SpaceX does a round every six months for employees. OpenAI's now do, did a tender a couple months ago for employees to get liquidity. Like, like this is becoming a thing, right? So, so Clint, like, you know, uh, with all these companies doing, do you think this is the new normal now that these guys are staying private for longer? Like, you know, they're giving these folks an opportunity to get liquidity, you know, employees to get liquidity through these like tender offers. You think we'll see more companies do this? Like, what are your thoughts there? I think that's only part of the bigger ones that are going to do that, right? In terms of uh, stay private, long, you know, it, the business model's got to be conducive to that, like a SpaceX, right? I think some of it's just indicative of the liquidity trends, right? There hasn't been that eventual exit. They were timing it. They were saying, hey, we're going to have IPO, right? Probably communicating that across channels. And I think you just you didn't have that experience because you've had the Fed tightening policy and banks locking up credit. And that's spilled down to private equity and venture capital funding. And so as that, as that kind of uh, domino effect transitions, you're going to have to do some of these things to, to offer to to, to do well for your employees, right, and to offer them liquidity on their shares. And so I think it was just a natural response to new information. Yeah. Uh, and that new information is really the liquidity trend. Uh, but, I mean, when I say that, I think that's for the majority of the participants. When you start to look at names like SpaceX, there's obviously, look, they're probably going to stay private for as long as possible and spin off different uh, pieces of the business model, but because it's just more conducive to staying private. But, uh, you know, those type of tender offers and everything are going to come up more regular, but that's kind of the condition you expect with that name. Whereas right. the other names, I think it was just a, you know, an, an adequate response to a declining liquidity trend. I understand. I got you. So, so Tim, then, you know, you're an advisor, right? You mm-hmm. have an employee, you have a, a client that's got like a large stock position. 
Uh, how do you normally deal with that? Do you like do you hedge it? Do you try to get them to sell it? Like what? Like what do you what do you do? And yeah, is, it, we, is it different if it's a public company versus a private company? Yeah, right? I was my thought on this from the standpoint of is this the norm? Is where things are going? I would say when you think about the credit crunch, it's obviously Clint talks about this a lot and some of the tightening. I think you read this a lot. There's a talent crunch. There's a there's a real crunch on talent. Employees, executives, leadership, talent, developers, people that have real talent. They have a little more leverage now. Therefore, they're going to demand more things. Where if you join an IPO in the past or a startup company, you expect to go IPO. You got stock options. You have pretty good hope that it's going to execute. Well, now these companies are saying, hey, we're okay if you guys don't IPO, but I, I, right. I'm committed to this firm. My time, my family's money's tied in here. I've got a spouse who's saying, when are we buying that vacation house you've been promising me? When am I going to be able to put my kids to that you know, high education college? I need to fund these goals. If my net worth is tied into the company stock, it wouldn't surprise me if we see more of this. Good companies that may or may not go IPO provide liquidity for their employees to retain their best talent. They can't lose sure. that talent. So I can see this being the room. So to your point, yes, we counsel people on when your stock, when your company stock exceeds 10% of your overall investable net worth, you've got to start looking hard at it. And you're talking clients that we've encountered that have 50, 60, 70% of their not only non-qualified taxable assets, but company stock in their 401k. You better yeah. believe they're getting more advice now saying, get out of that. They've seen too many problems when you didn't diversify. I'm yeah, just thinking yeah. this is a trickle effect of demand by employees saying they want to stay loyal. You've got to make some liquidity available for them. Yeah. I mean, like to me, to me, this is like 10, 15 years ago, all of these companies would have been public by now. So it'd been easy to sell it. You just sell it in the public yep. market. But now that these are all private, you probably, to your point, Tim, like, you have people that's like probably, I mean, some of these people, I can only imagine like open AI people. I mean, that thing went from, that the company's eight years old. It's like they went from zero to 28 billion, 30 billion. I mean, <laughs> you could be like employee number 250 and be worth like $60 million of open AI stuff, right? right. Like, I mean, that's nuts. So like you gotta, you gotta, you gotta sell, but you can't sell it because it's private. So then I, these tenders, I mean, I, I mean, to me that, that, that's a big part of it. But so Nick, let me ask you this though. Do you think like, do you think that these tender deals or these employee driven, you know, to Tim's point, like these employee driven liquidity events, are they good for the secondary market? Are they bad for the secondary market? Like, how do you think, how do you feel like that plays into the, 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 the dynamics of how this kind of secondary market's evolving? I would, I would say the general dynamic uh, on, a, on a high level are benefiting from this, right? So, I, I mean, I'll go back to like 2006, 2007. My old company, Market, became IHS Market, eventually got absorbed by S&P. We pretty much had liquidity events like this from 2006 to 2007 every single year. Okay. And I think that was a, a really good benefit for us as employees. It did keep the talent internal. I think in the broad sense, getting back to your question, sorry, to uh, go off, but the, the the true benefit is we get folks much more comfortable with just having stock in private companies here, right. whether we're going to have secondaries, tenders, or both. I think it's a really healthy healthy thing to have um, and keeps people motivated, keeps people uh not locked in and hating the company that they work for because of liquidity issues and things of that that nature. Yeah, holistically, I think this is a, a net benefit to secondaries and the, the proliferation of bigger and bigger and bigger private companies. Yeah, I mean, I I I actually love it. I mean, some I think some folks some folks I've talked to have said 
you're kind of taking food out of the mouth of a, of a secondary market trade, like the smaller trades, like if the company's controlling it and then big institutions are coming in and buying it, you're kind of taking away from a lot of transaction activity that potentially could happen. But I think it's great for price discovery, especially when it happens so frequently, which is a major driver, I think, of clearing of clearing trades just across the board, right? Um, and also, too, I think it's good. I think it's good long run. I think it's good because you get more shareholders, right? Mm. I think you get more shareholders out there, institutional shareholders, and then ultimately, I think that ends up being a good a good thing too. So, I think this is net net positive. I, I actually hope if we see more companies stay private for longer, that this stuff happens. I think I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of it personally because options are going to start expiring. I think right. people are hitting like the 10 year, like that's what happened at Stripe, right? I just think they had a critical mass of people hitting that 10 year mark and their options were going to expire worthless unless they did something because they all had non-qualified options and they couldn't afford the tax bill, right? So like, what do you do? Like either approve a shitload of, of secondary market transactions at the board level, which they probably don't want to do because you got a whole bunch of cowboy employees out there just trying to like get rid of stock. So your prices all over the place or you do something thoughtful, you know, like I think like they attempted to do. So it's uh, it's gonna be okay. So Nick, like, let's talk about valuations just in, in general, right? So so we talked we hit on this I think maybe two weeks ago too. Just you know like secondary market is obviously below a lot of these primary uh, rounds, and, and some companies it's pretty material, right? Like you know I can think of Stripe and Klarna that had like proper primary rounds that kind of reset their prices and now I think if you look at the secondary market they're kind of trading around like where that last primary round has been for for some time now like the, are, can you think of any I can't think of any others have you thought of any are there any others that have bitten the bullet and kind of did that primary round at the at the at a lower valuation number um, what, what, what do you got bring, I'll, I'll bring it back to eToro because this, this is the the most like one of the more recent or interesting scenarios where they they were originally going to have a very chunky, chunky valuation. Uh, didn't come through, right? And then they came out with uh, with the more recent primary round, and they said that they were doing the second, uh, the uh, the placement at a, a slight discount below the round. And I think that's rather rather interesting because it's probably where the secondary would have occurred anyways. Right. Um, in in part because it's also a lot more of the common pairs that don't have the same liquidation preferences. Um, that maybe don't get paid in the same priority, right? As as, uh, as the the more recent primary, and I, and I think that's that's actually pretty telling. But as um, as kind of new rounds are going to take place this year, we're, we're definitely seeing the secondary market start to reflect where those rounds are going to take place. And those two two examples that you mentioned, uh, particularly Klarna, we saw coming from uh, a couple months in advance. So it's super interesting right. there. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, Clint, you're a CEO. Like, let's put on the imagination hat here, right? You're the CEO of one of these high-growth tech venture-backed companies, okay? You did a, a round, a big round a couple years ago at big valuation. Now, here you are. You're still growing, still delivering and executing, right? But the market's kind of reset. Like, what do you do? Do you, do you like, kind of bite the bullet? Do you kind of just bite the bullet and, and kind of just do this big down round? Do you try to grow out of it, right? Stay private, grow out of it, like go public and just see what happens. Like, what, what do you what do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, it depends on your path to profitability. It depends on your runway. It depends on a lot. Uh, but I'll just go ahead and say I'm a high-power growth company, and I'm rewarded for reinvesting everything I could possibly earn and then some into development of new talent, development of new product, and executing that product and creating a best the best client experience I can create. I'm taking any down round I can get because I need you need capital. You have to have, this is what, something we talk about all the time, the entire financial system in the U.S., and in particular venture, where this is the most profound, where you're betting on long-term, long-duration assets. It's 100% based on additional units of credit creation. And so unless you're like super late stage and you've got a path to profitability by, by managing the expense line and cutting as much cost out and getting to a point where you're going to have margin expansion in the future, we've seen companies do that this year, then you might be able to bypass it, right, with enough enough cuts. But if you're, you know, on the earlier stage side of things and you've just been plowing and growing as fast as you can possibly grow, you need the additional units of credit. And that funding mechanism is broken down. And look, we're, we're this is 2023. We've already had 54 private equity and VC bankruptcies for portfolio companies this year. That is high, uh, just to go ahead and put that out there. And so we're... We're on pace to get close to what we did in 2020, right? The, again, when, when you have this kind of liquidity cycle, liquidity preference becomes number one. And so you have to have cash and you have to have runway to survive. So take the down round, do whatever you need to do to ensure survival. Mm. That's what I would Okay. Do. I got you. And then Tim, like, you know, you're helping your clients, you know, perhaps think about investing in pre-IPO stocks. Like, do you wait? I mean, I'm sure it depends on the company, right? But do you wait for this kind of formal reprice in the primary round before you would step in? Or do you say, hey, like, let's roll the dice and see if we can get in. And then maybe the primary round's north of where we got in at. And we get a like, nice little pop right here from uh, from timing and getting into the company. Like, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a great question. It makes me think a lot about consumer behavior. I first think about traditional thinking and, of course, public markets. You, you think about, it's a question about valuations, right? I think it's your fundamental undertone yeah. there. You yeah. think about valuations, I get this from our from our good OCI partner, Wellshield. Their valuations are still not good in the U.S. markets, yet the Nasdaq's up 33%, the S&P 500's up 17% year-to-date. So clients tell you they're not caring that much about valuations. Now, that's a long-term trajectory, but that gives you an idea. Behavior doesn't always match what is logical. I think that has a slightly different lens in our conversations with clients, and I'll just add this other layer. IPO 20 years ago was a hot thing. Oh my God, I can get access to an IPO. Facebook, I want that IPO. They didn't care about the valuation. They did not Mm -hmm. care. Now when it comes to, oh, I'm gonna buy a pre-IPO, so I might not know how soon, where IPO is, it's imminent. I know what it was, I know this company, I don't care what the price is. Pre-IPO, a little more due diligence. What is it Mm -hmm. looking like? Give me some of the numbers, the clients who make sound decisions, obviously following investment guidance from all of you. We, of course, only do this for accredited investors. It's obviously very applicable to each individual person's plan, so no recommendations here. But I, you will see that layer of lens on what's the, what do the numbers look like from a valuation standpoint, more in the pre-IPO space. I think consumer behavior allows and the bias creeps up more of, oh, I know this company, therefore its valuation must be good, which isn't always yeah. the case with IPOs, as we know. So you got to dig in. you got to dig in a little bit, company by company basis. Okay. All right. So... Uh, so one last item here, not to throw you guys a curveball, but have you seen this LK99, this superconductivity uh, science paper that's come out? 
Mm-hmm. Of, like I'm freaking out about this. There's so much interesting technology that's happening, whether it's Apple Vision Pro, it's the metaverse. Now there's this LK99. So it's superconductivity. So basically they can, you can like levitate uh, room temperature, superconductivity. You can levitate with magnets uh, material, this material, which is a whole slew of, of interesting applications. But I think maybe the most simple way to think about it is I, from what I'm told is in the long run, electricity would basically the price of electricity would drop like dramatically, mm. right? But like a factor of maybe more than three, 75%. So like that's super interesting. Like the world is getting very, very intriguing. But anything else, like anything else in your guys' mind with LK99, AI, like tech, like like anything hot right now that's, uh, I know it's the summer. Is that, a, is that a pun? Anything hot after going through the uh, room, room temperature uh, processing and all the benefits that that will bring? I think oh, that's good. No, I, I actually haven't wrapped my head around it, but I think the potential for, a, a, I mean, compute is going to be massive here because the, the amount of that effort, energy, um, going through uh, that that process, the all that is the backbone of AI, I mean, that's incredible. So yeah. the, the timing couldn't be better with, uh, with that going hand in hand, for sure. Yeah, yeah. How about you guys, Clint, Tim, anything on the tech side? Yeah, man, I mean, emerging I mean, tech. I'll talk about LK99. I mean, this is uh, this is fascinating for quantum computing for uh, like uh, like Nick said, just compute in general. But if you think about the amount of waste, right, because our whole entire goal is to take energy, right, and then create productive uses out of that energy, right, transfer that energy into productive uses. And if you do that efficiently, you're rewarded. When you start to think about what this could potentially mean, I've just I've just read the periphery, but if you can think about what this could potentially mean for quantum computing and AI and our ability to do that super efficiently, it's great yeah. for humanity long term. At least I hope so. I'm not going to be the doomsdayer on here about AI taking over and turning us right, into the right. matrix or whatever. But I think uh, I think that's a phenomenal phenomenal development if it can hold and and if it's uh, even half of what uh, what it's you know being uh, purported to be. My only quick take on some of the recent stuff I read in the past week, not nearly as sophisticated as interesting as you just described, but very relevant to some we talked about several podcasts before is with respect to AI and chat GPT. You know, they're they're looking at advisors now and sort of that movie star, I can make the movie star look real. Could advisors from a marketing and scaling their business standpoint have a video where they look like they're seeing Tim Urey in front of them, but I pre-scripted my my uh, financial planning update for them, and that, that can become much more of a scalable item. That, that, what's interesting about it, and you made the comment, Aaron, is it's growing so fast. It went from, oh, this might be an idea, to, no, that'll probably be in place next year for RAAs and individual right. advisors to provide counsel to clients and hold a different perspective uh, yeah. pre-programmed. Yeah, I'm, I'm, like, I'm starting to have more and more conviction that the, like, you know, the top 25 to 50 companies in the S&P 500 in like 20 years time will be look very different than it does today. Like there were there, I would just say as short as a few months ago, I was like, well, of course, you know, the big gorillas that are in there now, the Googles, the, you know, the, the, the metas, the Amazons, like they'll be the big winners of this. And I do think that's true. But I also think that some of this tech is coming so fast that you're going to start seeing companies just they're going to be able to go on their own, right? And and whether go public and then and attract capital and expand their businesses. So it's happening fast. 
Yeah, it's happening expansion, real fast. I think to your comment, the whole theme of the path to expansion isn't the traditional. I have to go IPO and I have to garner assets that way. It can be much faster. It can sidebar that and and reach an audience that uh, we can't even conceive of currently. I think that's a very astute point by you, Aaron. Yeah, it's a good time to be an investor, right? Good time it to is. be an investor. So great time to be right. alive. That's right. All right, fellas, I appreciate you. Thanks for doing this this week. Hey, thanks, Thank everybody. You. Thank okay. you. All right, you guys take care. Cheers. Bye.